Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Hello, reporting from the field. Don't know what that means. <laughs> reporting for the field. This is Alyssa Rosano. And what the hell is going on? And what the fuck is happening? <laughs> Over 200,000 um, people are dying of this disease, none of which have uh, a billion uh, access healthcare. to any of the best medicines in the world or the best <laughs> doctors in the world, um, like our president who has denied this <laughs> disease. This liberal hoax. Okay. This liberal we can't hoax help and now ourselves. has it. And we are talking about COVID today. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, yes, we are. And I'm really excited because this is one of my best friends in the entire world. Um, she is a registered nurse. She's a BSN, Bachelor of Science in Nursing, CCRN, Critical Care Registered Nurse mm. um, in Colorado. And her name is Kelly Ritchie. And Kelly has a very unique experience and perspective that I know all of us want to hear um, regarding her experience as a nurse in the heat of the storm, um, the peak of the outbreak in the United States. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but I kind of just did. But uh, just welcome her on, her expertise. And actually, you know, I know a lot of us have, we're all seeing the news. We all talk to our friends and family, but very few of us are actual nurses in the middle of it. And I had personally so many questions for her, like what it actually looks like in the room. Who's being brought in? What are the what are you seeing? Uh, so it's a really interesting conversation. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank oh, you thank so you much. Thank you for being here. We're so we're so lucky, like that you have like time to talk to us and that, you know, you're know. in Molly's life and now mine that you can like share and impart this wisdom because like I mean, I have tons of questions, but I'm sure like everybody in the world does because this is so prevalent. I yeah. know. Um, I And just like the, you know, we're all seeing the news and we've all been on the outside of it. But when it comes down to actually being in the room with these people that are being brought into the hospital, it's like when you were first there, I was just like, wait, I don't know any. I had so many random questions for you just because. I can't even imagine what your day to day would look like. And we're going to dive into that. But what just as a quick little teaser for the listeners, what is the, this SOS moment that we are discussing? Yeah, so my SOS moment was definitely, you know, getting called out to help in New Jersey during the height of the pandemic. So my husband and I packed up our cars and drove across country to go help. <laughs> and it was open ended, right? Like you didn't know when you'd come back. Yeah, we signed up for an eight-week assignment, so we kind of knew that we'd be out there for those eight weeks, but we also knew that there was going to be a high probability that we could extend if we needed to. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we knew eight weeks for sure. Yeah. It, wow. And that, so I was kind of going to ask you, like, what made you feel the urge to do that? I mean, because that really is... I mean, it's not that easy to do because you're just like literally putting your whole life on hold. You have to figure out what to do with your house while you're gone. Like what? I mean, that's a lot to coordinate and to make that decision, even for your own, you and Matt, your husband, for your own safety to dive into the middle of that. And it's a big decision. So I don't know what what kind of really was it kind of a no brainer for you or did you really have to think about it? Yeah, so you know, that I've travel nursed before. And so that made mm-hmm. the decision a little bit easier because it was another assignment for me, but I knew it was yeah. going to have a much higher stake. But um, yeah, we 
we kind of made the decision on a whim. I was kind of in between jobs and it just lined up perfectly. I was actually going to a surgical side of nursing where Mm -hmm. when that was happening, they shut down, like they didn't need elective surgery. So I was getting Uh. ready to to start this new position, but they didn't really need me. So I was like, okay, well, you know, there are people everywhere dying that need us. So um, I started researching. It was so easy. I mean, people are basically recruiting you to go out there. Yeah. I went through an agency called Fast Staff and they just, it, it takes like a couple of weeks really to log you, like sign on, you do some tests and then you're out there. That's, that's like the need that they needed in New Jersey and New and York, anywhere. There's a lot of places that needed us. Was yours, the hospital you were at, that was one of the main hubs at the time in the country, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. So you- New York was hit first and then obviously New Jersey just being so close to it. Um, a lot of those workers come from New Jersey into New York and they commute back and forth. And so we, we had a huge influx when I got there. It was funny, like right when I got there was kind of when like we opened an entire unit. And so we just saw it from the beginning where there was like four patients and we just filled the entire unit within that first, I want to say week and a half that we were there. Wow. And, um, yeah, the emergency department was like inundated with patients. Like we had nowhere to put them. Um, so yeah, it was wild wild experience i mean like what but like when you're kind of preparing yourself to going like were you feeling like like a kind of a sense of dread of just like of not knowing like how much you could give as far as like you know did you have like a maybe a a limit in your head of just like what you can undertake when you're about to basically go to the front lines of this thing yeah you know I, i didn't really have a whole lot of time to think about that and I've worked in critical care for the past seven years. And so I've seen a lot mm-hmm. um, and you kind of learn to like compartmentalize like your emotions. And so I think I was just kind of like pushing everything aside and I was mm-hmm. just like, these people need help. We're going to go yeah. worked out for us. But yeah, I mean, getting out there, it was definitely more emotional than I thought it would ever be. Yeah. Um, definitely one of the hardest things I've done in my nursing career, but I'm such like an interested person. I kind of felt like, it was like calling me to go out there. I mm-hmm. kind of wanted to see what that meant to be on the front lines and to be helping out there too. So mm-hmm. I think that's a big reason why I was drawn to it. So when you got there and as it start, you said within that first like week, week and a half, and it started to get insane and you guys were beyond capacity. What does that look like in your day? Like you show up and then are you just like handed person after person after person or like what was your what was it looking like for you when you'd go in for work yeah um it's hard to explain but so normally in the, in critical care and icu you're you're assigned two patients because they're so sick it's like mm-hmm. kind of what you can manage and sometimes you have one patient if they're really sick mm-hmm. um so when we got there they didn't have a lot of travelers and just to for perspective so this was an ortho unit and they had converted the doors so like before all the doors had no windows and in an icu typically it's like full windows, monitors everywhere. We can see vital signs, everything. Mm. And in this particular unit, they had like one central monitor that we can monitor patients. They put little slits in the doors for windows. So you couldn't even see your patients. Oh my God. Which is really unsafe in that sense. Like you, you couldn't tell a lot of time what was happening. And so I remember when we first arrived, the other thing too is like there's in these kind of situations, there's zero orientation. You literally just get, they just need bodies to take care of people. Yeah. Um, so we show up and there's like, I want to say maybe three or four other travelers there and the unit. I remember when we first got there, we were just kind of getting oriented to the hospital and mm-hmm. there were only four patients on the unit. And that was, that was during the day. And we were coming back that night to work. We were working night shift on this um, assignment 
And um, by that night, I think they had already had an extra five or six ICU admissions. And then throughout the night, we like filled, the unit was divided into two. I think it had about 12 beds on either side. Mm-hmm. We completely filled the first half of that ICU and there were only four nurses there or less. Oh, I don't even remember. God. So we each had four ICU patients, which is unheard of. <laughs> and like oh. trying to monitor these people and they were so sick and try to figure out we had to intubate them. We had to put yeah. them, meaning like, like we just didn't have the manpower for it. Like mm-hmm. there's no way, like all of us on the unit would be in one room trying to turn these patients on their stomachs to help with their breathing while they are intubated, you know, and then there's patients outside who are crashing and we have no idea it's happening. So it was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. The first like two or three weeks were like this until we kind of learned the system and we got a team together to help with these things. And then we got more, more nurses, but um, yeah, it was, I've, yeah, I mean, I remember we would just leave work and we we're just like, sometimes my friend and I, we, cause we went together, we'd look at each other. Like, I don't even know, like we almost like comical. We're like, how do we even like take right. care of these patients? Like you can't, you can't keep up with it. Yeah. Did you, um, did you have enough ventilators? Like, did you have to ventilate a lot of the patients? Every single patient, almost every single patient was on a ventilator. And when we showed up, so basically these rooms are supposed to be negative pressure rooms. So none of the particles get outside. So it's always like sucking the air in. Mm -hmm. And when we first got there, I remember too, we were looking at these doors and there's this huge anesthesia machine sitting outside, which anesthesia machines are used for surgery. They're used for short term. They're not Mm -hmm. used for these long-term patients. Mm -hmm. Every patient had an anesthesia machine because we had no ventilators in the hospital. And um, Mm. as a nurse, like we're used to running ventilators. We're used to the system, like the, you know, running those, but we had no idea how to run an anesthesia machine and like all of us are things are going wrong we're calling you know our anesthesiologist to come upstairs because we have no idea why the patient isn't breathing or like why they're like the oxygen saturations are dropping and we can't troubleshoot because we have no idea how to work these machines and you're in a foreign hospital like you don't even know where things are kept right because you're no a lot of you came from other states yeah no i mean yeah we had zero zero orientation to the unit we're just flying with our pants yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I have like a million questions. My brain is like, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm right interested now. to describe it. Yeah. I'm interested too, because of like, um, just kind of debunking or not debunking or just kind of like, you know, having answers to the questions. Cause a lot of it was just like, oh, it's only older people. It's only like, um, you know, uh, pre-existing conditions. Like, did you see a lot of variation in the patients as far as age and, and race too? Yeah. Yeah. We saw, I would say, you know, the majority of our patients, which I think initially when COVID first came out, I think they were thinking it was like seventies or 80, you know, Mm -hmm. older patients. And we were really surprised to find that the majority of our patients were in their fifties and sixties and they were male, Mm -hmm. you know, in that part of the country, it's very diverse. So we had, you know, we had Hispanics, we had blacks, we had, and, and, you know, I would say it was mostly more common in that, in that, ethnic ethnicity group mm-hmm. also i i don't know if that was also just the area we were in too you know there right. weren't as many caucasians out there or white people i mean they do say it, it does affect like hispanic and black people at a disproportionate rate which is right is scary so what was um was it manifesting itself in similar ways with everybody or was it was each patient i mean you guys don't have any like thing to go off of really. You're just like trying to keep them breathing and then trying to figure out what is happening in their body 
um, I would imagine. And so like, were you seeing a lot of the same symptoms or were you guys constantly smacked with like new things to look out for? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because, you know, towards the end of it, we were really trying to keep these patients off ventilators. And initially it was like, we were, we were so unsure of this virus that if patients weren't doing well, even on like a nasal cannula in their nose, because of the aerosolizing issues that come with, you know, putting a tube down somebody's throat and like the exposure to the healthcare workers, we were not that we were, we were trying initially to go straight from like a nasal cannula to an intubation. Mm -hmm. And so once these patients were intubated, then it was like very similar, their progression in the disease. Um, you know, like they didn't have their lungs would get so stiff and non-compliant and so we had the we had them on these like outrageous ventilator settings that you would never really see in a regular ICU, just trying to get any sort of oxygen to their body because their lungs just weren't working anymore. Ugh. From that, we just saw the rest of, you know, that's just what happens. If your body doesn't get oxygen, the rest of your organs fail. So then, yeah. you know, they go into kidney failure, their livers, they would have, they would have GI bleeds, they would have brain bleeds. We saw everything. And then the other thing with these patients, which was so interesting, which, you know, I don't know. It was just, they would have these super crazy high fevers, like up to like, sometimes, I mean, I think I saw one as high as like 106 degrees. And, and then they would just, when, when it would break, they would shoot down to like 96 degrees, which is so labile. And their blood pressures were just all over. Like you just couldn't keep up with them. Like the sickest patients I've ever seen. And so, but it was very interesting. Like a lot of them kind of stuck on the same like trajectory, like once mm-hmm. you saw it happening, you're like, oh, this is happening. Like you kind of figured oh. it out. But yeah, they all did, went into organ failure, most of them. Did you, at some point. was it a thing of, um, you were just losing people, um, kind of like, like hemorrhaging, like you're just losing patients until you guys figured, had enough equipment or figured something out? Like did, was there a period of time where you were like, I guess they're all showing the same symptoms. I can predict what's going to happen, but I can't stop it. Like, were you just feeling like. Yeah. You kind of felt helpless in a lot of ways yeah. because what these patients really needed was they needed to be on dialysis, like a continuous dialysis machine. And normally in a normal ICU with enough equipment, that's what they would be on. And that's what we'd put them on. We didn't have the manpower one to do that for these patients. And two, uh-huh. we didn't have the machines for it. And so mm-hmm. at that point, your kidneys fail and the rest of your organs fail and you can't like at that point it's just futile like you can't do anything else for these patients and so a lot of it I felt like we like we were trying our best to keep these patients alive but we just didn't have the resources to do it Mm -hmm. and that was I think and I'm like maybe these patients would have had better outcomes had we had those resources but we just didn't yeah and I'm sure a lot of people felt that way what was PPE like for you did you feel safe yeah um so Kind of crazy, actually. So before I left, I was working at a hospital in Colorado before we went out there. Um, And the PPE situation here in Colorado was so crazy. Like they were just basically the hospital I was at was like hoarding PPE. Like we didn't use what you should be using with these patients is an N95. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have heard of those during all this talk. So, but they weren't giving us those initially. They were just giving us a regular surgical mask to go in and care for these patients. And then we would have face shields which is fine we'd wipe those off and then we'd have the gown and we'd be Mm -hmm. sharing the gown between nurses for like one patient we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have like a new gown which you should have you know we'd be like wiping it down as much as we could Mm -hmm. so our hospital here was being really stingy because they were thinking that maybe we would run out which i understand but then 
we didn't have the influx of patients like they did in New Jersey and New York. We go to New York and New Jersey and we had more PPE than like I felt oh. so protected there. Yeah, we oh, had good. every day, like there was a couple of days where we had to share um, gowns, but mm-hmm. every day we had new PPE, we had new N95s. Oh, had to, oh yeah, good. we would like kind of save them yeah. <laughs> in case like we didn't yeah. have them. Um, but yeah, no, they really did protect us. Yeah, because you heard of there. you heard of so many, especially in like Queens, where there was like the, the it was like the epicenter, um, like the hospitals there, just like the nurses and the doctors being like, we I've been wearing the same mask for a week straight. I've been wearing the same gown for a week straight, and I'm just so perplexed at how it happens like that. You know, like how did they pick and. I don't know how that that goes. Excuse my ignorance. Like, how does that go? Like, how does one hospital get more equipment? And that and especially because, yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. I think we were getting donations from people in the Mm -hmm. area. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, honestly, how how we got it. I I mean, security was holding it pretty tight. Like we would Mm -hmm. have to call them in the morning to get more. We couldn't just go and pick it up ourselves. Right. Yeah. Definitely managing it. Um, And I know that New York. I mean, maybe they were just going through more nurses, more patients because it's just yeah. all hospitals. So maybe that's why they just didn't have as much. But I felt like we had quite a few donations um, and I felt like we were really taken care of at our hospital, which I'm so thankful for because that was one of the, you know, scarier things about going out there was yeah. actually knowing like I could be wearing a trash bag or, yeah. you know, I could just be ma- making, you know, just wearing a surgical mask. I don't know yeah. what, what I'm going to have out there for protection. Um. So, and you kind of mentioned like maybe the community donated to the hospital you don't know but that made me think of the community that you were living in because a lot of you just came from your own hospitals you know you're planted into a new community in the midst of the peak of everybody's fear no one knows what's going on I mean you guys don't know what's going on let alone like the public and so there's a lot of just fear brings out the worst in people and I'm just curious of how you and your fellow travel nurses at that time were received in that community because I mean that was the peak of like literally we didn't even know can you touch people? How do you know, people are hyper. Yeah. So we, um, obviously, you know, my good friend, Megan, your good friend, Megan, um, Mm -hmm. we had kind of a New Jersey was appealing to us because we, our friend Megan moved from New Jersey when this was all happening to her house in Breckenridge, Colorado to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And so her apartment had just been sitting empty out there in New Jersey. And so one of the appeals to going and helping in this particular area, we're like, well, we don't have to worry about a place to live. Like, you know, that was a whole other stress of the situation. Um, so we oh, got nice. to her, Matt and I were driving with our dog across the country and we're two hours. Our whole plan was like to stay in their apartment for the time being, you know, and have like a cozy place to stay. Cause we visited there many times and we're two hours outside of New Jersey. And my friend calls me and she's like, Hey, um, we're having some issues. She lives in one of those brownstone apartments. And so, you do have to share the main entrance way you share the same stairwell to get up, but she was mm-hmm. on the second floor. Um, but she had not told the people in her building and she did it out of courtesy to let them know we were going to be staying there. And basically they just shut us down and we're like, no, like we cannot have nurses here. Like we can't, you know, we can't expose people in our, in our apartment complex. And they essentially said that we couldn't stay there. So Two hours, two hours away, 30 hours across the country. We're like, (sighs) oh, shit. Like, uh, what? Well, we're going to I don't know. We'll figure something out. So Matt and I are just like we're it's dark. It's actually raining. I remember. Oh, my God. Find an Airbnb and my friends flying in that night. We're picking her up from the airport with her dog. And 
we're like, okay, well, we'll figure something out, you know, and it, and, you know, it turned out fine. And yeah, the whole thing we like tried to, I mean, we wrote letters to their apartment complex to try to let us stay there. We were wow. to like, let them know that we would be extra careful. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even until like we were going to be staying there that they actually were starting to take precautions and they would like, act, they would put, you know, hand sanitizer outside and gloves and things like that. But they weren't mm-hmm. even doing any of that until we, yeah. uh, you know, potentially we're going to live there. So um, you know, that. we weren't taken well from them, but mm-hmm. it turned out, you know, I mean, I told you like after that, we, we found another Airbnb to stay at and the community after that whole kind of negativity happened, um, the community in Hoboken was like, unlike any other, the, the family that we, we basically rented, um, an Airbnb above, like, it was like a duplex and Mm -hmm. the family next door, just like the most hospitable people. And they told their neighbors we were there. And like, there would be kids like riding like heroes and all these things on the chalk with chalk out on our, like on our sidewalks when we go to work, we Mm -hmm. had people would leave us gifts all the time, like cupcakes, cookies. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, after that, like, it was just so amazing how, how well Hoboken treated us. Yeah. Had the best experience because of them for sure. How, how would you, cause I know during that time, of course we talked, but just the sheer, I mean, you're describing those shifts. How long were your shifts first of all, because that leads into this question that I'm going to ask. <laughs> so, um, the funny thing was when we first started there, we didn't have nurses to relieve us. So we would work. Yeah. We didn't have any people to come and help us oh and God. nobody wanted to come to our unit because it was the COVID unit. And like, and so like they were trying to grab nurses from in the hospital to come and help us. And they were just refusing. People would just stop working. They just weren't showing up for work or they would just quit their jobs and not come to work. Oh um, my God. We had worked our asses off for 12, 13 hours. We get there. shift starts at 7 PM. We work till 7 AM. And I, as a nurse, like that's like the first thing you learn is like, you get there, you relieve that nurse because it's 12 hours and it's, yeah. it's a lot of work. And so, you know, the first like couple weeks, we didn't have people come relieve us until sometimes 10, 11 in the morning. And we would just get what? so frustrated. Yeah, we just literally didn't have 15, 16 hour shifts, 15, 16 hour shifts. And we were oh working four days a week, sometimes. <laughs> so that's what I was going to ask was, and, and meanwhile, obviously, these shifts are hectic as hell. You're like, you don't know what's going on. You're everything's getting away from you. And my question is, how does one maintain mental sanity and emotional sanity because i know for you and you're working night shifts and you had to sacrifice you know you how how you prefer to get like your workouts your eating your sleeping like everything just goes to the wayside and i'm just curious like how you handle that and how your coworkers like how were you guys all able to get through that emotionally because you're also the emotional burden of of losing people while you're on the shift totally um, I don't know. We, I don't know, honestly, like I'm looking mm-hmm. back and I'm like, I don't know how we did that because you blacked out. We, we also <laughs> didn't. Yeah, pretty much. We also didn't work like four shifts in a row consistently. So sometimes mm-hmm. it'd be like one on one off, two on one off, one off, which is like mm-hmm. way worse for your body. Yeah. And so, um, I think really what helped me was that I had my two coworkers out there and in nursing anyway, you just kind of like just carpooling with people, you get to kind of decompress and like talk about what happened on your shift on the way home Mm -hmm. on the way to work um that's like that was the biggest thing and Mm -hmm. um we tried to work you know like we tried to go for runs on our days off but we were just zombies like we had zero energy and i've never felt like that before 
and then obviously like my husband came out with us and he was the best like he he didn't have a job at the time so he just Mm -hmm. ended up working as an EMT in the hospital there but he would cook for us and Mm -hmm. clean for us and he took care of the dogs and so we had like in terms of like home life when we came back like it was so stress-free because of him and I don't know if we could have done it without him because he did everything for us so yeah but yeah mentally we just we just try to do like the best we could and try to get mm-hmm. outside when we could, but it was also so rainy there. Like we couldn't really, mm-hmm. it was like cloudy. It was just kind of a rough time of year. Yeah. And so we just didn't really even get to go outside a whole lot. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. In your, in your perspective and like your experience with this thing and you know, how hard you've worked and, and what you've dealt with, like what are common misconceptions of the virus would you say in your, in your view? Because there's, I mean, to this day, a lot of stuff, you know, like, um, you know, our president now has it and, and he kept talking about this. I can't I can't pronounce it, but the hydro. Oh, hydrochloroquine. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, that being this magic cure and like, oh, obviously I, I saw the list of the medicines they're giving him and the treatments and that's not on them. Shocker. <laughs> you know, like what what are the common misconceptions that you found? Um. Gosh, that's a good question. I would say the common misconceptions are that only elderly people get it because we saw a variety of patients getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another misconception is, you know, the whole mask wearing thing. People don't think that wearing a mask is going to help them from getting it at all, which it's actually been proving that it's helping a ton with the mm-hmm. spread of COVID-19. Um, and then as far as like medications you're talking about, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't been in it. I, I started right when it was in the height of it all. So I don't yeah. know what's really happening now and what's been mm-hmm. working, but I know that the trials from hydrochloroquine, I forget, we were also doing this um, antiviral drug we were using, which was like a drip. I don't even remember what it was. And then we were using this like chemo drug on some patients, which, mm. but I just feel like, I don't know necessarily. I kind of feel like if you get it and it's really bad, like there's, it's a hard, it's hard to come back from it. And I don't even mm-hmm. know if there's any drugs or anything like that that can really make it better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Those are, I feel like those are some of the misconceptions of it for me. Um, I'm curious, like, aside from what we all are told, and of course, number one, wear a mask, but with your knowledge that you have, what are some recommendations for the average American today when it comes to protecting ourselves day to day, aside from mask, or is it just all the things we've been hearing and nothing more, you know, hand sanitizer, masks, but are there any things that you've learned from your experience that actually are really beneficial that most people don't know? Um, I would just say, you know, just take care of yourself. You know, mm. I think during this whole thing, people are, I mean, they're taking, it's taking a burden on people's mental health and their physical health. And I would say going, you know, getting outside and doing things that are healthy for you mentally and physically, I think that's just going to make your immune system stronger through anything. Mm. Um, that's one thing. And obviously, yes, wearing a mask, washing your hands, trying to do, if you are doing group settings, just trying to be outside. Mm-hmm. Colorado's great for that because we can always be yeah. outside and away from people. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. The CDC is, I feel like, trying their best to protect us all. And I feel like it's it's working for the most part. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what else to tell the public. Just take mm-hmm. your health. Yeah. Stay healthy, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, how do you feel? I mean, I brought it up before and it's just been on my mind the past few days about like with the president and like the super spreading event that happened (laughs) last weekend at the Rose Garden like how do you feel about that whole thing like do you like is is there enough 
um, like what more can leadership be doing basically to make sure that we are doing what we can? Because I feel like there's just so much back and forth and like he, he, he I feel like I think at one point of the debate, he, he defended Fauci and then, but he's also, he, he denounces what Fauci tries to tell us. So I, I, it's so confusing. And I, I don't know in your perspective that if like, what can more could they be doing? I just think in general, you know, it's, it is up to each individual state how we treat COVID. And yeah. um, I just think if the president was just more like aggressive in treating it, I think this could have all been prevented. If we could have mm-hmm. shut down borders, if we could have just said, everybody's wearing a mask, yeah, things are shut down. Like if we yeah. could have just been all unity on one, you know, it doesn't have to be state by state, but just as like right. a country, as a nation to stop this thing. I feel like that would have been a way better way to yeah. stop the spread. And I just don't think that, I think even for me, like for driving across from New Jersey to Colorado, each state was so different. And I was mm-hmm. talking because in New Jersey, we were just wearing masks everywhere. And, you know, we weren't going outside. Everything was closed down. And then you just go, you know, to Ohio and people aren't wearing masks. And like, it's just yeah. different, like state to state. And so um, I think just shutting it down and just mm-hmm. just do that for a short period of time and like let us all just get through it. I think yeah. it would have helped a lot. And it would have been, it, it's just so unclear for everybody. Nobody yeah. what's, really, what's right, what's wrong because there's there, so many back and forth. There's no united states. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. it's very yeah. interesting because like, um, you know, now we have perspective from it. When you were there, obviously it was it was right we didn't know how anything was going to unfold, how other countries were going to handle it and how it was going to look. But, you know, now like six or seven months out from the initial thing, it's kind of like been made clear which countries, what strategies worked and what strategies didn't. And I <laughs> completely agree with what you're saying. And I, I would like to also point out that countries led by women did the best. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> right? Like New Zealand. I mean, and, and it really, there's like, more in the white house saying, than New Zealand. There's more cases of, I saw right? that today. Yeah. yeah. Then in news, it's like, what the fuck is well, our problem? It's and, just like, but, you like know, what I, you said, Kelly, of like initially it's it's the time has passed because now here we are. But what it was the initial like making that decision, shut down the borders. Everyone wears masks. And, you know, people are so it's a it's an affront to their rights to have to be told to wear a mask. And yet you'll tell women what to do with their bodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's wearing a fucking mask. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's fine. Yeah, like you, you, fine. You're gonna be fine. You, you're yeah. all okay with having to take your ball caps off when you go into a nice restaurant. <laughs> yeah, is that not? It just doesn't right. make sense. It's just backwards <laughs> to me. Like I just came back from a road trip where I visited Colorado for the first time. It's the most beautiful state. I loved it so much. Yeah, yeah. it's we stopped in Utah too, and um, where we were in Utah, and it, it was just it was bothering me and my husband like we were just it was a lot of blue lives matter it was a lot of no one was wearing masks and I was curious I was like well there's no one wearing masks so I looked it up and like you Utah is spiking intensely and like everything is open like indoor restaurants indoor events like I I just don't understand the disrespect uh for nurses and doctors right now because this is just keeping them from other patients from their families and putting them at risk because they have to now fucking take care of you mm-hmm. yeah exactly and that's like i think you know and it's hard because it's if you're not experiencing it like firsthand a lot of people just feel like like most things like it doesn't really exist you know they're like mm-hmm. it's not affecting me personally so like fuck do i care yeah right. and until like i started even messaging some of my family members when i was out there um i had to tell them like what i was seeing and i had to explain to them like 
this is really serious. And it's the worst part about it is that when you do die, you're dying alone because yes. you have families come into the hospital. And so I think like them hearing that, like, and I just got chills again. Cause it's so sad. Yeah. That was no, the worst yes. part of it. It was just these patients oh, dying on ventilators alone. No. So I think when you kind of scare that into them, somebody who has a firsthand account, they're like, oh shit, you know, so my family has been really good, but like, you know, you go out other places and people are skeptical of it or just think it's a fucking hoax or political. Yeah. And I'm like, I just want you guys to have a day in like the sh- in the shoes of a nurse and just see like what these, what were, what we went through and still are going through, you know, like, I mean, it's right. down a lot, but like, this is the fall. This could happen again. It could spike again and we could be in the same situation we were just a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I know it's really frustrating. I just feel I know, like it's- people are just, they just only care about themselves a lot of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what you said too, it's like, I mean, I understand that it's become political because especially our administration, but the fact that this is even a political issue is ridiculous. Like it's, it's an, it's a virus and we're all in danger and we need to take care of one another and be safe. And why is this a left or right issue? <laughs> what? It's yeah, so just bringing it about yourself, like making it about yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I, it's Kelly, like, I'm how like, how life can you be? It's sorry. <laughs> I'm just so no, angry. I, I don't understand any I know. of it, but so frustrated. I, like I have so much respect for you and thank you for your mm-hmm. service. Like, yeah, well, there, there needs to be more Kelly's in the world. I and... know <laughs> there's a lot of nurses out there doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, I, and... thank you for, I mean, every, for going out and doing that, for sacrificing so much of your own life and your well-being just to dive into that and also for talking to us about it because those of us not in the healthcare profession were very ignorant as to what it actually looks like in there and and even the terminology like asking questions I'm like uh, <laughs> what but like I think it's I know. so our little artist you... brains were like um hi Gerald Carla I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for for explaining everything to us and for giving us your experience and I hope that people listening if, if nothing else, just take away the seriousness of this and the reality of it. And yeah, I mean, like you said, think about others as well as yourself. Exactly. <laughs> so don't be a dick. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, don't be a dick. <laughs> Stop being a little bitch. <laughs> um, thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you, Kelly. I love yeah, you so much. Thanks for having me. This is, of um, course. I actually talked about this in a long time, so it was interesting to think about it again. So yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Kelly. I am yes. just overwhelmed. And it's just like, it's things that I don't have the mental or emotional capacity to it's, to do. I just feel like when you're seeing so much and, you know, you're yeah. on the front lines of this and all that pressure um, of not getting sick, but also to heal physically. And I'm, I, I just feel like it's so much. And I, know. I, I have so much respect for her and the nurses and the doctors. Yeah. And the amount of um, stress and anxiety and fatigue that I know during her time there, she was there for months and, you know, I was talking with her all the time and, oh my God, like literally had no time for herself, no time to eat right, no time to work out, no time to sleep, no time to barely communicate with friends, like no time for herself. Um, And so... You know, and that is that's part of the job, I understand, especially in emergency situations. But just the amount of self-sacrifice that goes into um, jumping 
on board something that benefits the whole and sacrificing yourself in that period of time is really admirable, really exhausting. I know it took a toll on her emotionally, too. I mean, that's just really hard. I'm just feeling soapboxy and I'll get this out of the way. It's just so funny. I'm sure you can agree. It's like I I, I just thought about what you were saying that like all this blue blue lives matter bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. Blue lives matter. Like they put their fucking shit on the line. It's like the doctors and the nurses. What about their lives mattering? Right. Idiots who are super spreading at these rallies. Mm -hmm. You idiots. I know. Well, and the whole thing with putting them at anything. risk, like people like Kelly at risk. What about their yeah. lives mattering? White lives? No, that's white lives matter. Because <laughs> I was trying to say like a white coat. White. Oh my god. No, but I mean that's. But that's also the confusion where people tend to go to. A profession is not a skin tone, so you can take off like anything that we should not even be confusing any profession. No, with no, but the Black in lives their matter logic, thing. if they think Correct. police, their blue lives matter. But they still yeah. go around refusing to wear masks, um, going to these crazy events, <laughs> right? And, and and not giving a fuck and calling it a liberal hoax. What about the doctors that are saving your fucking life? What about you their know, li- if, if it, it by your logic of of professions yeah, of having lives, you know? And whatever. Kelly, um, while she was there, I remember. I mean, I think she had been there like like a week or two when I was talking to her at this point and asking her about. Um, PPE and like ventilators, all the equipment um, that they didn't have. And she was at one of the hospitals, one of the main hubs in the country at that time. And, you know, she was telling me how short they were on all this equipment. And then just a week or two ago to see a little clip of Trump, which I've seen throughout, but just him being like, we were never short on equipment. We always had this for everybody. I'm like, excuse me, sir. What? Like it's widely yeah, there were tons that we of were nurses sh- and doctors like making videos being oh, like yeah. my 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 hospital this st- we are so underprepared. Yeah. Nobody was and then we had other countries shipping us right materials. So it's like I don't know. Forget I don't it. know. Forget it. It's a mess. Um, um but before uh before we jump into the charity, yeah. I do want to plug Kelly's Instagram. Um it is at gub underscore step. So at G U B B underscore step s-t-e-p like dubstep get it <laughs> um <laughs> send her some but love. she is also i mean she's always camping and backpacking and rock climbing and biking and if you want some beautiful colorado nature photos and videos mm. check it out uh i love colorado i just went there for the first time oh fucking i'm beautiful. going in a couple weeks i'm so excited so, ugh, i love it okay so Speaking of, uh, our charity nonprofit today is the Center for Improving Value in Healthcare. It's set up in Denver, Colorado. It's a, uh, it's a Denver, Colorado-based nonprofit that strives to empower individuals, communities, and organizations through collaborative support services and healthcare information to advance the triple aim of better health, better care, and lower costs for all Coloradans. In 2009, CIVHC began as a conventing of diverse stakeholders committed to changing the way care is paid for and delivered. Through work groups and task forces, CIVHC cultivated relationships with like-minded partners that continue to make improvements throughout the state. Community engagement is in- integral. Integral, right? That's how you pronounce it. Integral. That. Integral? Integral, I think. God. <laughs> to CIVHC's... <laughs> we don't know. Um, 
<laughs> philosophy. God, I can't read. And core work. They hold a broad view of what makes up a community and feel that only through par- partnerships and collaborations will we successfully affect change. So to learn more, go to civhc.org. Yes. I support that. Yeah. Um, I would love mm-hmm. nothing more than for all of you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the SOS pod. Um, subscribe and review us. We have a YouTube now, SOS with Molly and Alyssa. Um, subscribe and review on iTunes, Spotify, Google, everywhere you can download and stream podcasts. Um, honestly, leaving a rating with the little five-star ratings or leaving a actual written review helps massively in the algorithm of getting us discovered by other listeners. Uh, so please, please do that. If any of our episodes strike a chord with you or relate to somebody in your life, please pass it on um, to any friends or family that you think would be interested, really trying to grow this for ourselves. And Alyssa and I are still in our first year. It's really fun. We're learning a lot and you guys can help us grow. So please do. Um, Yeah. Here's to turning meltdowns into magic.